For two plus decades now, Blue October has been stirring audiences. We've watched, followed, and loved them from the early beginnings of Hate Me to whatever they show us tomorrow. We bleed blue, and many of us have used that blue blood and this amazing music to get through our own experiences. It's always been there. Welcome to Just Sway, the Blue Experience, where your host, Lucas Peterson, takes on and shares everything Blue October. Let's Just Sway. I heard recently a great quote that resonated so well with me. Humans tell stories. That's how we make sense of our lives. All of us are composed of our own complex individual stories wrapped up in years of struggle, obstacles and achievements, joy and heartaches, misery and passion. We all have something to say about where we came from and how we got to the moment where we are right now. We all want to be heard and understood. We long to feel recognized and loved and hope that through the telling of our own story, the people in our lives will see us as best as they can and know us better. This is my story. My name is Lucas Peterson and welcome to Just Sway. This is episode seven, 2%. First, remember, if you enjoy Just Sway, please do me a favor and subscribe to the show and leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Sway is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Just Sway Show. I would love to hear and see what you have to say about the podcast, so take a screenshot and tag the show, or just leave me a note and let's talk some more Blue October. Thank you for joining me here today, and as much as I've been wanting to do this, there's a good bit of me that is very reluctant to go into my own story. But I'm glad you're here, and I appreciate your listening. I'm not one who likes to talk a great deal about myself in general terms. I wear my heart on my sleeve with the people close to me, no doubt, but I'm usually a pretty private person. When I started Just Sway, however, I knew at some point I was going to have to tell my own story with Blue October and how and what the music meant to me in my life. In figuring out how best to do this, I thought maybe I could have a friend join me and we could just have a conversation that you get to be a part of. So I want to welcome to Just Sway my wonderful and beautiful friend Megan, who's going to be our host for this episode. Megan and I have been good friends for a while now, and she knew and experienced life with me during the development of this show. She knows how much Blue October and Just Sway mean to me. And I kind of converted her into a little bit of a fan last year when we went to Blue October here in Dallas. So no harm in that, right? So from here on, the show is all yours, Megan. I know. So, Lucas, I know that you have a love for Blue October, and I know a little bit of where that kind of comes from, but can you kind of walk me through where that all started? So, you know more of the story because you've, you and I have been friends since this idea came about, and I think we'll get to that later. That's kind of where it'll all round out. My own beginnings, which I'm happy to share, even though I'm I'm kind of reluctant to share all this, but 
at the same time, I feel it really needs to be told. It needs to be added to the show just to say, here's where I am. Here's where I came from. And all the people I've talked with who have shared their own stories, I want to share mine, not to up anybody or not to do anything like that, but just to say, I get you. I've been there, you know, and I've I've faced some tough life challenges. So my beginnings with them is pretty easy. It's 2003, and I went to a Sister Hazel concert, of all things. <laughs> Nobody knows who Sister Hazel any- is anymore. They should. I loved Sister Hazel. <laughs> I'll still listen to their songs. So, yeah, it was 2003. And the reason it was so memorable was for me is that my oldest son was in utero at the time. So he was due, I think his due date was August 16th. And this concert had to be the end of June, beginning of July of that year. And, you know, Sister Hazel at the Minnesota Zoo, Twin Cities, Minneapolis area. And opening band was these dudes, one of which had blue hair with devil horns called (laughs) Blue October. And a guy with a violin in a rock band, you know, it was just like, what the hell? And they started playing right away. And I was just like, yeah, this is this is something different. You know, this was the days of I think they might have had calling you. I'm pretty sure they had calling you on the set list. I couldn't tell you any of the other songs they sang that Mm -hmm. night. I just remember the whole thing being wowed. Being like, holy cow, who were these dudes? Like, and okay. what did you, what made you feel like that? It was the stories. It was you know the so fact the words that, and the lyrics and yeah that you knew what he was singing about, what Justin was singing about was real. You could just tell instantly that the things he was talking about were things that had happened to him. Somehow he had lived them. He had gone through that stuff, and you know, same as I've heard other people say and. One of the reasons I do this show is to help my own self articulate where my feelings come for or come from for this band. It just, it was like, you are in my head. This is me. I've had these thoughts. I've had these feelings. I've felt similar things of Mm -hmm. this. And, you know, I, I wish I could remember more of the audience of that concert because I don't. Um, I, I remember where I was sitting. I remember watching it. I have visual memories of that, but I don't remember the connections of what other people might have had. And then, of course, afterwards, met the band, had, you know, small interaction with them, got them to sign the CD, which mm-hmm. I no longer have. I don't know where that went to, but that was a long time ago. And just, it was lasting. Um, you know, I took that CD, which was History for Sale, and played the shit out of it mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the <laughs> least i mean the slow songs on there oh man yeah the slow songs on there would really help me to help me to feel like i said and, and i still feel that way that's part of what they do and then the the faster songs would not only help you to feel some things but would get you going get you amped up so mm-hmm. they just became an integral part of my sound repertoire <laughs> at that time yeah, there's a, a lot of other bands a lot of other music going on during that time but they took over very quickly and yeah so that's kind of where my origins came from with them
Well, I know that in 2005, you got very sick. Kind of what happened with that? I used to be very overweight. I was around 270 pounds. And this story is not public, so this is the first time I'm telling this. And in fact, I just recently told my boss at work. I've worked there for almost six months, and she didn't even know. Nobody knows. Most people who know me do not know, unless you get really close to me. And then I'll tell people. I was severely overweight, severely obese, I guess you would say. I was mm-hmm. 270 pounds and five foot. Which is five. crazy to yeah. picture. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the pictures <laughs> to prove it. I had a year before both my mom and my sister had had weight loss surgery. Mm-hmm. I had tried for years to lose weight. And I gained most of the weight after high school in getting married and then working in fast food and then going into a more sedentary lifestyle, Mm -hmm. not exercising, eating poorly, just mm, bad life habits, I guess you would say. There was probably some genetics that played into that as well because both, like I said, both my mom and my sister had had that done a year before me. So Mm -hmm. I had the weight loss surgery done. And that was um, 2004. And then almost a year later, I was at work one day and got really sick after lunch, went into the bathroom, threw up, had horrible pains in my stomach, didn't know what the hell was going on. And I had my cell phone in my pocket, which, I mean, this was 2005 time, so it was the Mm -hmm. old (laughs) Motorola flip phone. But luckily I had my phone and I had passed out on the bathroom floor. And I called my mom and, you know, was like, hey, I don't know what's going on here's what's happening. And she's like, you need to get to a hospital. So I went to the hospital and kind of to sum it up a little bit, I was misdiagnosed for almost 20 hours. They didn't know what was wrong with me. They were doing lots of different tests and could not figure out what had happened to me. Well, when I eventually got to the U of M, the University of Minnesota, because the first hospital I went to they opened me up the next morning because I presented at about one thirty in the afternoon and they op- opened me up at like 8.30 the next morning and basically said, this dude's dead. Mm-hmm. He's not going to make it. Um, all of my organs were shutting down. Most of my small intestine had died. It had become necrotic. So what had happened is it fell inside this window and got twisted. And from the that point on it died my small intestine it Mm -hmm. just it lost blood flow so like anything in your body that loses blood flow it did not live and no oxygen no life so they call the u of m and the u of m is like no send him here we'll we'll uh get a helicopter out there so i get to the u of m and they did the same thing opened me up checked me out what was going on and then they went to talk to my family and they said yeah We can do two things. We can let him die or we can try to put it back together and he probably won't survive the night. And they literally said to my sister at the time, because my sister was there, the woman I would end up marrying later, who was, I guess, a girlfriend at that time was there. And then my soon-to-be ex-wife was there as well. And then other friends who had come to support those people were there along with them and of course I'm completely out of it I have no recollection of any of this but they told my family that I had a two percent chance of making it through that night because they said you know most of my small intestine was dead and they said not only even if he makes it through that night he's never going to be normal 
He'll never eat again. He'll have to be on TPN, which is the IV feeding, and we might as well just let him die. We'll just put him on comfort care and let him die. Mm-hmm. And my sister, who's a fighter, was like, nope. I'm like, no, you go in there, do what you can. You don't know my brother, you know. And so they did. And, you know, luckily, I, I guess there's a few things that happen in there, you know, as well, but which I can explain. But most people can't live without at least six feet of small intestine. Mm-hmm. I, as of today, have like 50 to 60 centimeters, which is just under a foot. I usually just say like I have a foot. So I have and one how, how much does a normal person have? Uh, if you're Caucasian, 20 to 22 feet. And if you're African-American, because whatever reason, their genetics, you have more. So 20 to 24 feet is what somebody who's African-American descent would have. So I have a foot. I have wow. one. That's, that's a crazy figure to that think is, of, actually. That's crazy. The crazier figure for me is the whole one-sixth thing. Like, they don't see people normally live with less than six feet. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I had that wrapped around my brain. I was like, this is messed up. Like, how am I mm-hmm. still alive? The doctors didn't think I'd survive the night. I survived. I woke up the next morning. My sister's there. Or, uh, it wasn't the next morning. I'm sorry. It was a couple days later. But my sister was at my bedside, and I did the helicopter spinning thing with my finger because I knew I was in a different room mm-hmm. and I just knew the gravity of the situation. I guess I could just tell. And she nods at me and smiles and laughs and she's like, yep, you got here on a helicopter. And I did the little aw shucks with my hand and my fist and was like, damn it. Like I'd never been on a helicopter and that really <laughs> pissed me off at the moment. I was really bummed out that I'd been on a helicopter and couldn't even remember it. <laughs> so that happened. That was September 1st, 2005 was well, I, I got sick on August 31st, but I always consider it September 1st was because that's the day they took me all apart and took everything. So the U of M, University of Minnesota, is always special to me in my heart because they put in the effort and wanted to at least give me a shot. And, you know, they did. <laughs> I'm very lucky. I owe a big yes, debt to them. For sure. You're in the hospital, and it doesn't look good. What was the next part of recovery? What was the next steps? Well, I spent six weeks that first time both in the hospital and at my grandma's. They wanted me to recover for a while, and they wanted my system to kind of heal itself a little bit. They had closed me off. I had a tube out the side of me, which is really weird to say, but it's called a jujunostomy. It's not a, like a, it's like a colostomy, but it's just the other side. Is that how you ate? No, I oh. was not eating. I didn't eat. I didn't eat for six weeks. I didn't have any food. I had simply TPN. What's that? TPN is, it stands for something. I think it's just total parental nutrition. It's basically the IV food feeding. It's this yellow liquid that they hook you up to and so during that time, I had a pick line, which is a more direct line, and it's more permanent mm-hmm. for an IV. And also during this time, I had two blood infections. Well, I had one blood infection before the second surgery, and then another one shortly thereafter. Both blood infections were awful. I had fevers that were like 105, 106. Mm. Wow. I was hospitalized for both of them, and mm-hmm. at that time, they were scared to death because mm-hmm. there was... Lots of bad things going on. So, yeah, they 
let me sit for a while. Then I went back first part of October of 2005, and they put me all back together. That was basically reconnecting everything to try to give me a shot. There was talk during that time of having a small bowel transplant mm-hmm. because at you know I was at the U of M University of Minnesota and they were one of the few places in the world that did small bowel transplants. They would do them with pig intestines. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you could have a donor donate a piece of theirs. You know, and we were in the early stages on I don't think my sister ever got tested but she wanted to do it. I did some dental exams to get ready for that mm-hmm. because there was some uh, other stuff and I remember going to some other appointments and during this time I'm going to the doctor two or three times a week quite a bit they were monitoring my levels everything incredibly closely I have a stay at home or not a stay at home what do they call the in-home care mm-hmm. nurse that would come in every day or every other day to provide the TPN monitor just all kinds of things. I didn't want to stay in a rehab place, and I got really lucky. I only did two or three nights, and it was horrible. Mm-hmm. And then they let me go the first time to my grandma's, and then after the second surgery, they let me go and basically move in with you know the person I would marry. They would not let me live by myself, which sucked. But I didn't want to go back to my family, so I stayed there with her and her roommate and, yeah, tried to manage I was on the TPN. They wouldn't let me. They first told me they weren't going to let me try to eat. And I was like, no, 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 no. Wait, wait. <laughs> hold on. Why don't, why, why don't we just give it a shot? Mm-hmm. And they're like, that's never going to work. Like you have a foot of small intestine. You're never going to get enough nutrition through mm-hmm. that little bit. Like we've never seen that. We don't have documented cases of that. You have less than six feet. You're going to have to be on TPN. And I was like, well, you know what? What's the harm? Yeah, I'm in let's the same, try it. Yeah, I'm going to be in the same situation anyway. Let's do it. And I think it was right around middle of November, maybe first part of December, where I finally convinced them. And, I, you know, again, I was going to the doctor all the time. I would meet with my surgeon. I, was meet, I would meet with a GI doctor, a gastroenterologist, and then dietitians. I'd be at the hospital sometimes at the U of M for two and a half, three hours Mm -hmm. each visit, sometimes really long. Uh, Like I said, they were keeping very close monitor on me because I was delicate, fragile situation at the time. So what was it? What was your living situation like? The living situation sucked. Just very down. Mm -hmm. It was horrible. You know, like I said, I was living with the person I would go on and marry, and she would become the mother of my youngest child. And, like, that relationship was, you know, strained at best because I'm this sick person who's not in a good state. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where my mind was. I was I was surviving every day. And when I eventually got to the point where they said, okay, let's see if you can try to eat, I'm the type of person that was like, you know what, I'm just going to eat anything. Mm-hmm. I remember the first thing I ate out of the hospital, and it had to have been right around the first part of November, somewhere around that time, was pizza. Like, I was at my sister's, and I was like, because I think she had brought me to the hospital or picked me up or Mm -hmm. something, and we ordered a pizza, and I had pizza. And that went nowhere. (laughs) My (laughs) body was like, well, because it it hadn't had any food in that system for 
oh my gosh, you know, we're probably going on close to two months, if not over. Mm -hmm. And it did not like that. Probably not the best decision. No, no, (laughs) no. There was, there was no value. There was no nutrition, no nutrition. Right. And it just, you know, I, I ended up throwing that up and what became from that point forward and working with dietitians of trying to be like, okay, I want to eat regular. I don't want to do this TPN stuff because I think this was also at the point where I'd had the second blood infection and they kind of started to realize like, this is not going to be, there was another step they could have done. There's another more permanent IV line that they could have put in. I can't remember what it's called, but I never got to that point because that's where I stopped them. I was like, let me try to eat because the pick lines kept getting Mm -hmm. infected and a blood infection can kill you. Right. Like you can, you can die from that. And the two I had were really, really bad. And at that time, you know, I said, Hey, let me try. And they took the pick line out and they gave me the shot to try. The pizza was not the best idea, (laughs) but I started to listen to them and hear what they were saying. And then I just started eating high fat, high calorie meals, which for me was a lot of eggs, things like that. A lot of meats. I would have to stay away from certain things because it would, really upset me and during this time I'm still not incredibly I'm not very full figured (laughs) we will say but I wasn't gaunt Mm -hmm. but I got to the gaunt point Mm -hmm. because I pushed it and I I just pushed it right up to the edge and I just it was bad it was it was pretty bad it was a lot of trial and error I'm guessing that you're probably emotionally pretty um pretty down at that point it was hard yeah that was you know if we go back to the music I remember Mm -hmm. the music being there this was you know if we're talking the end of 2005 first part of 2006 and I don't remember exactly when it came in but you know one of the worst times the lowest times was I had been vomiting you know every day for probably this was after I started eating, so probably a few months. And the doctors had told me, like, without a small bowel transplant and without anything changing, without me wanting to change anything and with things not looking like they were going to go that great, they told me that my prognosis wasn't good. Mm-hmm. I was losing weight. I wasn't maintaining. My nutrition was steadily getting worse. And I was like, fuck it. So I had a day. I had a day where it was dumpster day. Mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. I've never really had a term for it, but it was the bottom. I I hit the bottom and I got drunk. I got mm-hmm. drunk at home and I wasn't even drinking at that time, but I, there was a bottle of Captain Morgan rum. I took it. I had a few drinks and then I didn't feel good. So I was like, well, I'll take a bath, but I'll bring the bottle. <laughs> and so I brought the bottle and took the bath and finished the bottle. Didn't even need the bottle pop soda coke whatever you want to call it and then threw up and i threw up everything from lunch i you know i'd gotten out of the bath and i didn't even make it to the couch where it and then it came out and it was in this living room that was carpeted so i felt awful and i spent the next you know half an hour cleaning it up before sarah and her roommate got home because i just was not going to leave them a mess Mm -hmm. and i was like this sucks like this is going to be my life every day this is not getting better and I don't want this and cleaned it up and I was not in a good state and I went back into the bathroom and I'm like I don't want to be here and I took a bunch of pills 
I just took a mouthful of, I think they were anti-nausea pills. That's what I had. And maybe some pain pills. I'm not exactly sure what I took. It was one or two bottles, but I took enough to where I thought it would be the end of me. And I was drunk, so I don't really know. I don't really remember. I took all those pills and then went and laid down. And I was like, that that's it. That'll be done. I'll be I'll be out, somebody'll find me and you know oh well. It's pretty shitty, pretty selfish. And I don't remember how much time passed, but you know, the thought entered my mind that, oh my gosh, now my kid at the time is not going to have a dad mm-hmm. and it was like oh no uh-uh. like I'm not doing that I can't do that and I just remember feeling this overwhelming feeling of get up go get rid of you know the stuff in your stomach and so I went and threw up and never had any ill effects and have rarely told a person about that it was not obviously not a bright shining star on my belt it sucked well, it was I think it's good that you're sharing that story I think a lot of people can relate to that I think a lot of people can relate to feeling like that feeling that low and I think it's a good thing that you're sharing it it was interesting in deciding to do this episode and I knew that I needed to talk about that because it was a big point in my life and I hadn't told my mom Mm -hmm. and up until you know a week or two ago I hadn't I hadn't even said it to my mom it was like this dark kind of corner thing that was just there the secret and I called and had the conversation with her and which went a lot better than I thought (laughs) you know she was just like oh my gosh and yeah but from then on I just kind of had this attitude of you know what you're not supposed to be here you survived that first night and then you survived every night past that so it's not up to you Mm -hmm. don't do anything that you're not in control of like let it go there's a reason yeah Mm -hmm. there was something i i i've struggled with that because that puts a lot of weight it can put a lot of overwhelming feeling on me of this whole why am i here Mm -hmm. but i did i did have that belief like there's got to be something i'm here for if it's that son alexander at the time Mm -hmm. or the one who would come later (laughs) Mm -hmm. i didn't know he wasn't there at the time you know Lincoln wasn't there, but I was like, there has to be something I'm here for. I don't know what it is, but you don't beat these kind of odds to just then die in your bed with a bunch of pills in your mouth. So was the music speaking to you at this time? Were you listening to a lot of it? Yes, and I I distinctly remember. I I don't remember when foiled came out but foiled has the song hate me on it and hate me <laughs> i hate me didn't do the same thing for me that it might have done to some other people hate me was something that i would listen to and i would feel awful about because i felt like i was this giant burden to the people around me to you know sarah and her roommate and my family who was financially supporting me And I was just like, because I couldn't work. I wasn't doing anything. I was at home. I didn't work for, you know, almost eight months or so, something like that. And I was just like, this is awful. Like, I'm worthless. And that song helped me to feel worthless. And then as soon as that day happened, Mm -hmm. I heard the song differently. I just, I heard it way differently. Mm -hmm. I don't remember why. 
And then the other songs from then really resonated. The slower songs, like I've said, I would feel like, you know, You Make Me Smile is one that would always... I would just think of different things that would make me happy when I heard that song. I was like, this is awesome. And that soundtrack at the time with my sister and I, who both connected, we both really loved Blue October during that time. And it kind of, it just helped me ground. It helped me to stay grounded, to not get out of my head, to not get ahead of myself. And to just let myself be to a certain degree. And to just know that this shit happens to other people too. Pour like children to the playground. Children to the playground. You make me smile. Some kind of light at the end. Stone forgetful like then. I'm drinking what used to be sin and touching the Justin hadn't gone through that. He hadn't gone through the the actual physical illness, but he was voicing in the music these thoughts that I had these low points yeah yeah exactly and it was just like okay he's all right like he seems to be doing okay I mean (laughs) I didn't have any inside information this was way before Instagram and maybe about the time of Facebook or whatever Mm -hmm. but I didn't know any I didn't know too much about this guy I didn't know anything about these band members other than you know, they made these two albums, which for me, that's all I had at the time. And it was like, yeah, this is, it helped. It helped. Mm-hmm. It just, it would help me to escape and leave and live in a different reality that would make me feel normal. That wouldn't make me feel judged or this misfit or worse, a burden. I did not want to be a burden. Like mm-hmm. I just hated that. And I, you know, I remember feeling like, Okay, you feel like a burden? All right, well, what are you going to do? And just taking that step, and and I started, I was still meeting with doctors. Maybe at that time it started to slow down to, you know, once every week or once every two weeks or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then it started to go once every month, once every six weeks. But for the first year, I was with doctors quite a bit. And it just, the music just helped me to say, what can I do today? It really ingrained that attitude because when I would meet with the dietitians, they would make me take a log. And so I started to figure some stuff out. And then I started to have maybe a day or two in between the days where I would throw up all the time. Mm -hmm. And those were good days. And I was like, oh, okay. Those were, you know, something's going right. Right. Something is not, not everything is wrong. All right, well, let's figure out what's right. Mm -hmm. So you started to have some hope with it. Yeah. Yeah, it really turned around. Mm-hmm. And it, it certainly wasn't anything overnight. That's not, I'm not ever trying to say that. It was not an instant click. It was not a snap of the fingers. A more gradual shift. And I just started to really be diagnostic in what I was doing, what I was putting into my body, how I was feeling, and then just approaching it with a more documented type of approach and Mm -hmm. working with doctors this would probably be around early spring 2006 okay so now you're you're starting to feel a little bit better there's a little more hope days are getting better you can keep some food down right yes okay uh what else is going on like what's going on with your personal life and right before I got sick the divorce stuff I had separated from 
my first wife and was dating someone who I would eventually end up marrying. And it was that was a big complication that kind of got put on hold because I wasn't able to deal with it. I was sick. I was, you know, near death for, mm-hmm. I don't want to say a good amount of time, but a little bit of time. So all that stuff kind of got... How much time are we talking here? Like a year? Um, Where this... Like yeah. since this has been going on, eight months, a year? You know, if we're sticking to on a time frame... Probably, if I go back to right around spring of 2006, spring, mm-hmm. early summer 2006 was when, it, you know, I I started to get, I, I think when I look back on it, things started to get a little bit better. And mm-hmm. there's there's some interesting things that happened in there. One of the best things that happened was my gallbladder had to, I had to have my gallbladder taken out. And I, I say that as if it's a good thing. And the actual surgery, surgery was very minimal. Mm-hmm. It's just another couple holes in your belly no big deal i mean i was opened up you know sternum to Mm -hmm. the bottom of my belt uh twice like a little a few little holes is no big deal Mm -hmm. but what had happened from me getting ready for that surgery and them trying to figure things out they made me do what's called a barium swallow test and this is a test where you swallow this white liquid you swallow it while you're on this x-ray and they kind of follow with what's going on with your system. Mm -hmm. And what they had found when they were taking these pictures is that my small intestine, and this is, I don't know, so we're looking at maybe six months right around that time. My small intestine had stretched itself out and widened itself. So it it couldn't grow. Your body, I mean, can't really grow Mm -hmm. more things to add on. But my body had adapted. And... They went and looked at it, and they saw that, you know, it had grown to whatever size it got to. I mean, it didn't grow a a ton. But the fact that it had widened itself out was very interesting to them. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, what's going on here? Why? Why is this so interesting to you? And they said, well, what what they thought was happening, and they hadn't seen this before, is that in your small intestine, there's these little things called villi. And it's the little round things that stick up, and that's what absorbs the nutrients. And so Mm -hmm. yours... You have lots of them. Well, I was now limited to my amount of villi available. And the body knew this. And so what the body did is it elongated itself and then widened itself so that all these little villi, which are usually just right next to each other, had more space around them. And they think what happened is that the body knew it needed more surface area to grab more nutrients. So they spread themselves out so that when the food was passing by, through the small intestine, it could grab more nutrients. They were utilizing the entire surface area now instead of being jammed up next to each other. Mm -hmm. And they were shocked. And for me, it was a really good positive sign. I was like, oh, okay. And at this time as well, I don't know if I was starting to gain weight, but I had at least maintained. I got down to 117 pounds, which is about 40 pounds less than where I am now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that big of a guy. Mm-mm. Like I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not slender or skinny or whatever you say right now. But, but you're I not was, a big guy. No, but I was gaunt. My face, pictures from that, uh, you know, the pictures that I remember, I was, my face was just skeletal. It was mm-hmm. really, really bad. I, you know, 115, 117 pounds, somewhere around that time. And I remember that being about January of 2006. And 
the doctors were close to where they were going to make the decision like you're going to have to be on TPN because your nutrition is suffering. Mm-hmm. But then when that gallbladder surgery happened and, and you know I had start started maintaining the weight, they were like there's something different going on here. Something is happening here. Something's unique and they didn't really understand it, but okay, we're going to mm-hmm. go with this. We're going to let him see you know, then they gave me a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. And around about the same time, I had been increasingly telling them all the time of, you know, my inability to eat or things getting stuck in my gut or throwing up all the time, constant vomiting mm-hmm. and all those things. And they're like, okay, well, then they go back and look at the records. And what had happened is the surgeon left a piece of dead tissue in my intestine at the end of my intestine before it goes into the large intestine. And he did that on a whim. He did that in order to help this freeway, basically, Mm -hmm. of your small intestine grind to a two-lane road halt because he didn't want things pushing through there so quickly. He knew Mm -hmm. he had a limited space to work with, and he wanted things to slow down. Slow down. Before they would get to, you know, the large intestine so that they could sit in the small intestine longer. Mm -hmm. Well, that turned out to be an incredible saving grace for me because that food sits in me longer. It doesn't just rush right through. Mm -hmm. It doesn't go through me like the speed it goes through a normal person at all. So I'm allowed to absorb more. And that's where they kind of went back and noticed that stuff. And the GI doctors and the dietitians weren't as aware of those things. Um, I don't really know why, but I just remember them all coming together around about this time, 2006, spring of 2006, and being like, oh, okay, well, this plan seems to be working. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Are you married at this point yet? In 2006? Yeah. No. I okay. wouldn't get re- I, I didn't get remarried during that time to Sarah. We didn't get married till June of 2008. You were just dating somebody at that time? I think when you're in recovery of a situation like this, dating is a really weird term Mm -hmm. because I wasn't, I mean, I got to be honest, I wasn't dating her. Mm -hmm. We lived together. We would do things together, of course, with her family, my family, stuff like that. Was she taking care of you? There was a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Yes. There was a lot of her helping me with different things. Mm -hmm. I'll always give her credit for that, no doubt. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the reasons the relationship worked at the time mm-hmm. is because that control was there. Mm-hmm. And, but I needed that. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have been able to live on my own. R- certainly not right off the bat and maybe not even, you know, nine months or a year later, mm-hmm. there was a lot, uh, there wasn't so much things, you know, during that spring, once that spring of 2006 happened or came, there wasn't a lot of things that I needed help with, but just being on your own, mm-hmm. w- dealing with this, allowed me to not have to focus on some other things. I had a little bit of support, at least from her, and then, you know, we had a roommate as well. Mm-hmm. So and during that time, I'm also going through what's going to be a divorce, you know, my first divorce, which was, I didn't know what the hell to do. And we had a kid together, you know, we had an, coming up on a two-year-old boy at that time. Mm-hmm. And so there was some custody issues that we dealt with and you weren't divorced yet no Mm -mm. i was not divorced yet and living with some but the living with someone at that time Mm -hmm. became a necessity right yeah so yeah i started dating before i was divorced 
No, it was not ideal. I I would tell everybody now. That's why I don't date people who are. Well, I mean, were you just, was it just a, a time issue? You just hadn't gotten around to it? I mean, obviously the re- relationship was over. Yeah. With the first wife. I started dating less than a month after separating. Mm-hmm. Way too early. I mean, I needed another person. There was no doubt I needed another person. And, man, I don't know how I would have been able to just focus on myself. That was the pretty bad part about the whole relationship during that time is I'm dating someone. We're not even a year in, and now we're living together, and now I am... Dependent. Dependent. Yeah. Very dependent. That's not a good place to be. No. It's not good for the relationship. Uh, No, it wasn't at all. So, oh, well, we'll go back to the, the divorce thing. But, yeah, that... Those proceedings kind of got put on hold to a certain extent while I recovered. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember my grandma hiring an attorney out of Park Rapids to send a letter to her attorney to be like, he's still sick. He can't go to court. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing we can do. Are like, you, you seeing Alexander at this time? I saw him very limited during that time. Mm-hmm. Number one, because I couldn't take care of him by myself. And, and how old was he? Um, he would have been coming up on... Two? No. 2003. He would have been coming up on three. Okay. He was two when I got sick. Okay. He would. He had just turned two. That's right. He had just turned two when I got sick. So when I would see him, we would have him for the weekend. Um, and in fact, it became more regular the more time went on. Mm-hmm. You know, his mom was very workable. She gave a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. She just wanted to know that he was going to be taken, taken care, care of. of. Yeah. Yeah. And then other things happened. She mo- ended up moving closer to where Sarah and I lived. And then, you know, things got pretty well from there. And then after the divorce was finalized, which wouldn't have been for another year, it was not till 2000. Yeah, I think it was 2007. Then things got fine. Like that custody battle with her, there was some things that were tougher in there. But then when I'm looking back on it, it wasn't nearly as tough as it would be with... The second time around? (laughs) Yeah, the second time (laughs) around. Exactly. 2008, you did end up marrying the girl that you had been dating while you were sick, right? Yes. Okay. So what was that like? How long were y'all married? We were married for five years. Yeah, five years. That was a tough relationship. Yeah. That was really tough. It was built on a lot of control. Mm-hmm. Really hard. And dependency? Yeah. yeah. Codependency. Yeah. For sure. I don't want to talk negatively about her. I won't talk negatively about her. That's, you know, she's the mother of my youngest son. Mm-hmm. I have my own feelings. I have my own opinions on how things happened. There's certainly things that were done that I don't agree with, but... In the end, there was just a lot of things that were not going to work. And getting sick probably didn't help anything. However, I still kind of feel like it wasn't a relationship that was ever meant to be. Right. Then, you know, her and I, it became this weird kind of play of control and how far can I push him? How far can I push him into whatever it is I want him to be Mm -hmm. and it didn't work Mm -hmm. and so I went one of the biggest things that happened that precipitated our divorce was I went back to school in 2010 
2009, 2010, and was aiming to go to law school mm-hmm. and had every intention on going to law school. And then that didn't happen because her and I ended up having a child together. What that did was separate my independence from her. Mm-hmm. It showed. And things didn't go well from that point on. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of unhappiness, a lot of tension. I became a drunk at home. Mm-hmm. I was the guy two steps in the door that needed a drink. and then that just, to, just to get through the night? Just to be around the person. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, just to get through the night. Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I still maintained my school duties. I didn't work during that time. Again, codependency type thing. I relied on her for a lot of things. I think we paid really cheap rent because we lived in a house her parents bought for us. And yeah, it was just, it was a bad relationship and should have been over a long time before then. But I think people get comfortable. Mm-hmm. I certainly got comfortable. And it was finally came to a point where I think she just noticed and realized she wasn't going to be able to control me and wasn't going to be able to steer me into what she wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. And there were some other things that happened that... Now, have had y'all already had Lincoln? We had Lincoln point? a year and a half before we separated. Okay. Yep. He was born July 8th, 2012. And we ended up separating, I guess it was only a year yeah, about a year after that. 2013, the summer of 2013 was the summer I moved out. And that was big. You know, that was a big step in my life as mm-hmm. well. And that was right about the time... Sway came out, right? That was my Sway time, yep. Yeah. And I had lost a little bit of my Blue October mojo, if you want. And they kind of disappeared. Like, when I looked back on it, I was like, what the heck happened? Like, how mm-hmm. did how did this time frame come about? I remember seeing them in spaces in between that time, but it was pretty few and far between. There might have been two concerts during 2005 and 2013 Mm -hmm. or somewhere around there. I remember the last time I saw them in 2013 because it was one of the last concerts I went to with my friend Lewis, and it was for the Sway Tour, but they had disappeared from my music repertoire as I used the term earlier but the reason they disappeared is because they literally just disappeared like Justin had a lot of problems mm-hmm. uh, he didn't go together all all away or go away full together but there's things that happened to him in between there that he and the band just kind of faded a little bit so then when I look back on it I was like oh it was was not just me <laughs> you know they d- mm-hmm. they just weren't as active mm-hmm. for their own personal reasons they had two albums Two or three albums that came out in between there. At least two I can think of. Approaching Normal, which I did buy. I remember buying that. I remember listening to that. But I only liked the one song from it at the time. Picking Up the Pieces, which I, you know, connected with again. But that was that came out in 2009. And then I didn't connect back with them until 2013. And then when Sway came out, it was boom, lights out. That one, Sway was just... Just really spoke to you? Yeah, Sway was everything. Mm-hmm. Sway still is. Sway is my album that I will put on for any mood. Mm-hmm. There is there's music on there, you know, that's just incredible. I, you know, it's it's one of those things that I'll always struggle to really articulate. One of the reasons I love talking to everybody else about it and mm-hmm. hearing everybody else's story with it. Mm-hmm. But one of the big ones was fear. 
just like everybody else talked about or other people have talked about. Mm-hmm. Fear for me was, it was a time in my life in 2013 where I could be like, you're going to be all right. You're going to be just fine. Just keep going. Mm-hmm. Don't give up. Get back up. Mm-hmm. And to have gone through the illness eight years earlier, that just became like, shit, this is nothing. Mm-hmm. All this is nothing. And if I keep that perspective, it really helps. That's actually hurt some of my relationships, though, too, actually, because people will be, they can be bothered by that. They can be like, well, why does nothing phase you? And I'm like, it's not like nothing phases me. Mm-hmm. Why are you so happy? Why do you, why are you able to get over such small things all the time? It's because I have this great perspective. I gained this incredible perspective when I decided I wasn't going to be in the dumpster anymore. And I still have shitty days. Mm-hmm. I do. I no doubt do. But I don't have shitty days like that. Or at least I try to stay way far away from that. I'm not in the hospital. I remember what it's like to be the, in the hospital very vividly. All those times, I remember looking out the window, and all I wanted to do was go to Target or go to Walmart and grocery shop. And it's those little things that now you look back on, and you're like, okay, yep, that's yeah. really important. And you've learned not to take it for granted. I do my best. Mm-hmm. And not sweat the small stuff. That's that's the phrase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I do my best to, and, you know, the music from that really speaks of that, too. From 2013 on, with Blue October, we've seen a different person. We've seen a change in Justin, you know, like other people have talked about, because that's when he got sober, was in, you know, the spring or sometime around there, 2013 or 2012. I'm not exactly sure on the time. I don't need to know the exact dates. I just know from sway on, from the time I heard that on till today, that's the different Justin. And we've seen this transition. Well, I will say that is what drew me to you, is your outlook on life and and positive and not sweating the small stuff and (laughs) finding positive. You were just overwhelmingly positive, almost almost to a funny degree when we first met. Like, I was like, how is this guy so positive? Like... (laughs) (laughs) Remember when we first talked and I was like, are you on drugs? Yes. Yes, I do remember. I was like, did you take something? You're like, no, this is just me. And I was like, oh, wow. Wasn't it like 1030 at night? It was. It was. And I was just like, wow, there's something, there's something unique about this guy. And that, that did, that really drew me to you. And I wanted to get to to know you more and, and know more of your story. And I really appreciated that. Okay. So I had the privilege of, you took me to one of their concerts yep. in October of 2018. Yep. Dallas. And in Dallas, um, it was my first Blue October experience. I think I'd only heard their one song on the radio. Um, so I was a little leery, uh, but I actually really enjoyed the concert. And you're right, their music really does um, speak to you. 
And I felt that. And with all the fans, I mean, their fans are diehard fans. You had also talked to me about doing this podcast and kind of kicking it around. And wasn't it that night that you talked to somebody and kind of came up with the name of it? Yeah, I so I had the idea, and I don't remember exactly when the idea first popped in my brain, but I know with the first podcast with Ride With Me, Drive With Me, when I did the Austin Mead episode, which was episode nine, and I got to play with his music, mm-hmm. and I got to mix his music into the episode, and I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> like just dropping in and fading it out and all that stuff. And I, I'm a big fan of Austin Mead as well. I love love the guy, mm-hmm. love his music. He's great. But that was just like, well, maybe I could start doing some of this with the band I really, really love. Mm-hmm. And I had been, like I said, you know, on these forums and whatnot on Facebook and talked to other fans in a limited kind of space, but knew there was these stories. And so when we went to that concert, I think it was getting more and more serious. And I don't remember you and I talking about it. I think we had only known each other like a week at that time. Because that was, yeah, was it was less than a week. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And... Well, I know that we had talked about it because then when you had seen Andrea that night. Yes. And you were like, I think this is what I want to call it. So we we had talked about it. Yeah. So I went, we were there, and Andrea, who's somebody I met at the another Blue October concert mm-hmm. in June in Abilene. And she was there. She had come to Dallas. I think she lives in Lubbock, her and her mom. I'd met her and her mom in, in June. And they came, and I remembered that her aunt had passed away within like the last month or something and her aunt was young her aunt was a teacher and we got to talking and she had said her aunt's favorite song was sway and i i don't know if i don't remember how the conversation went about but i remember going back with you you and i went back and you know our friends were there and we sat down and I just, I think I looked at you or, or something and I was just like, just sway. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the name. Mm-hmm. And then I texted Andrea right away. I'm like, you just gave me the name for my show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember <laughs> Which, that. Mm-hmm. And of course she texted back and was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. But I, I had been trying to figure out a name for this show because for me, that was, that was a big major first step is it had to have a right name. It had to have a name that conveyed Blue October without stealing their name or mm-hmm. using their name mm-hmm. and at the same time took what this music is and what this band and these men are about and encompassed it. And for me, that phrase, just sway, just go with it. You mm-hmm. know, that for me was like, it's my mantra besides keep graceful dancing. It's so present and it can be so helpful in your attitude in keeping things going and, just letting things happen. And it's a beautiful love song. I mean, it's one of my top five songs mm-hmm. from them. Is He's talking about how he never gets enough time with his wife. You know, he only gets an hour or so and mm-hmm. and let's dance. You know, mm-hmm. let's fucking dance. And it was just like, yep, there it is. And then from then on, it was, I don't know. So what made you want to do this podcast? What do you hope to get out of this? What are you, what's your reason for doing it? Why do you put on all this effort and time and hard work? I love the stories. I think we as people love the stories. We love connecting with 
other people mm-hmm. and hearing things that are different and yet the same for our own lives and hearing struggles that we can go, oh, wow, they made it through that. Well, I can make it through this. Mm-hmm. Their day was tougher or those types of things. And the people I've met, oh, my gosh, the people I've met in the last, you know, since the first part of November has just been, so what's that, six months? Incredible. And the stories that people have shared with me, where I want this to go, I, I just want to keep telling people stories. Mm-hmm. I want this band to grow. I want to see them even more successful than they are now. I want, I don't know if I want them to be, you know, the whole quote-unquote household type name. I mean, they've got a somewhat presence on that. But I want to help people understand that this is not and never has been just music. It's not to me. It's not to a lot of people. It's not just music. This is someone's life and what they've done to help so many other people needs to be shared. It needs to be told. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to do this. That's why That's why I do work hard because I think these stories share and connect and can bring people together. And they're tough. They're really tough. Sometimes I talk to people whether it's in person or remotely or whatever. And when I get done with that conversation, I'm drained. Mm -hmm. I'm an empath. I'm an empathetical person. And I give people my energy when I'm talking with them. And I've had to learn and I've had to talk to other people in the last six months of how to do that and how to keep my center, how to keep myself from feeling overwhelmed or whatever that might be. And the advice, the best piece of advice I've gotten is to literally just understand that I'm using this as a vessel. This is not me. I'm not a part of their story. I'm just a vessel. Mm -hmm. And I need to do this. There's been other things that have been very strange that have happened that the way I've connected with some people or happened to run into people or, you know, meet Mm -hmm. up, however you want to say where I'm just like, that's incredible. That's crazy. And, you know, I've told you a couple of times and I've told other people, I to put it in a few words is, I don't feel like this is what I was meant to do. I feel like I have to do this. Mm-hmm. I have felt like at times it's not just somebody pushing me. It's the finger of God, like right next to my shoulder, pushing me to keep on to keep doing things and i i don't know what it is i don't know what's going to come from it i just know that other people are hearing these stories and it's going well the reception i guess has been good i don't care about how many people i don't i don't want to be famous i just want other people to share in this Mm -hmm. and to feel a sense of comfort and a sense of connection and humanity and go i can do that I can well, do I think, it. I think the overall theme of most of your interviews is hope, you know? Yeah. These people have these incredible stories, but, you know, they're they're still living. They're still getting through it. You know, they're learning from it, and there's hope in that. And I think that's incredible that you can give that to other people. I do as well. I think that's the ultimate goal here, is that if one person hears it today tomorrow, a year from now, whatever it is, 
maybe there's an impact and mm-hmm. you don't know where those where that impact is going to end up where does that ripple stop nobody knows yeah and this is just so cool like i i don't even i can't even explain how cool it is how fun it is it's a lot of fun talking to people most of the time it's fun sharing mm-hmm. you know in all the different stories and hearing the different songs and what things mean to people i mean i've connected with people across the country i've talked to a woman in england you know, who messaged me on Instagram and was mm-hmm. loving the show and stuff like that. It was just like, that's, that's craziness awesome. to yeah. me. Like, I just, I, I'm just a guy that loves a band and wants to tell other people's stories that were and are very similar to mine and to help other people just go, yep, all right, I can do that. Mm-hmm. I can do it. I'm, I'm all right. I'm here. I'm making it. I'm here today. And I got this. Yeah. You know? Well, thank you. Thank you for the hard work that you put into it and putting it out there. I think it's important. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I could be a part of it. Yeah, me too. I was walking into work one morning late last year, and I had this phrase come into my head that maybe if we keep tossing pebbles into ponds, we'd all live in an ocean of waves. And for myself... As a quick summary, that's why I do this show. For me, it's just the right thing to do, to share these stories and hope that maybe just one person hears it who needs to hear it. A special thank you to Megan again for her help with this episode. I could not have asked for a better listener to let me go on about my story and ask the perfect questions when needed. And again, thank you to Jackson John for allowing me to use his music in parts here. That was his piano cover of Bleed Out you heard right in the middle there. Finally, I know some of the stuff I've shared here was tough to talk about, and I cannot stress enough that I did not get through any of this on my own. If you are having a tougher time in life and feel you need help, reach out. Ask a friend for a few minutes. Go see a relative. Something. Just make that call. And if you feel you need more than that, therapy has been a great help for myself. Ignore any stigma you think surrounds it, and please do not be afraid to admit that it's okay to not be okay. Thank you for listening to this episode. I always appreciate it. And until the next time you hear my voice, keep graceful dancing. And you're a superstar on your own. And I'm looking over your shoulder, getting older and God